testing what we're doing. Yeah, we're testing the equipment. Oh, yeah. What the fuck is this, Andy? This is Heavy Board. My name's Andrew Whitstap. And I'm Sophie Wiener. Whew. Episode three. So I just brought out the alcohol. McKellen 12 year. Basic bitch as far as scotch goes, but it's affordable. Um, I'm drinking this really gross rosé that my friend's brother gave to me. It's the only wine I have. It's the only alcohol I have. So, it's what we're doing. Yo, rosés are hot right now. I'm fine with rosé. I just don't like it sweet. I don't like really sweet wine. I used to not like sweet wine either until my wife became a wine expert. (laughs) Well, it's because you have to get the right kind. Like, it's like... I mean, like, it's fucking sweet. Like, like the dumb shit. I mean, do people, like, do rich people, like, drink fancy sweet wines? Yes, I was going to say it has to be... just, like, straight up The cheap, the cheap sweet wines are usually disgusting. So if you get, like, a Riesling and you're getting, like, a very cheap cheap riesling uh this is not good yeah it's going to be not so good but if you buy like and i don't even mean super expensive so if you go like the 20 dollar range or above per bottle uh which i know is expensive to most people for a bottle oh whatever dude adults if you're an adult you're buying wine like 20 dollars is not a big deal oh dude i always go bottom shelf really (laughs) I always go bottom shelf. I try to spend as little as possible. Unless I'm like really treating myself for some reason. But even that's usually like $11, $12. There's this one wine that's like decent. It's like not... I don't even fucking remember what it's called. But it was like... Okay. I got it from the place next to Eddie's by my parents. For I think like 14 bucks or something and the Eddie's here had it and it had been like bumped up to like 17 bucks I was like fuck you <laughs> everything's gone up in price but dude that's the thing yeah I think the average person spends like 13.99 on like a bottle of wine uh, I always try to convince as many people as I can now that I've seen the light that if you're just willing to spend like 20 to 35 dollars it's such a better oh, yeah. experience. <laughs> like it's such a it's such a better. Yeah, and if you go to France, you can get a really good wine well, for yeah. like six bucks. What's well, the thing is that you're getting the same wine, but here it'd be twenty, because you're paying all the fucking import shit and like taxes and whatever it costs to transfer that six dollar bottle. Can't even bottle. buy shitty wine for six for six bucks. Yeah, I'm just sticking to uh, the basic bitch scotch. Well, I did very little to prepare. Yeah, me too. So Well, it's not true. I did a lot. It was just a while ago. So I'm going to, I made like my three notes and I'm going to let you. I didn't have as many notes on this as I did in Mirth or Bloom. Yeah, good. Uh, (laughs) All right. So welcome listeners to the third episode of uh, Heavy Board. And as promised, we're going over Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day. I guess we'll just do his little bio in the novel here. 
Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro is the author of seven other novels, uh, including Never Let Me Go, uh, many of which have been adapted into films. Ishiguro's work has been translated into 40 languages, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he's won many honors, including the Booker Prize, Big Deal, uh, the Order of the British Empire for Service to Literature, um, and the French Decoration. Uh, I don't even know. How, I'm not going to even try to say that, dude. <laughs> that's. I'm just going to embarrass myself. Uh, and My I bio guess, is much, much shorter than yours. I'm just reading from the book, dude. Yeah. I mean, mine and my, my book is much, much shorter. Uh, we should get into that, which versions. Okay. And in 2017, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, I mean, would, we, would you call that the most prestigious honor in literature? So. <laughs> which one? The Nobel. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, what's a step below that? Like a Guggenheim? Uh, well, Nobel, I think, is more about, like, career, like, lifetime. I don't think they give it out for one particular book or... You're right. They don't. They give it to Bob Dylan. Yeah, oh, God. Fucking... <laughs> the no... They All don't right. give it out for a We're... book. God damn it. All right. If we're going to get into that, we mentioned it. We're going to have to talk about it. But we don't, Do but we? I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to fucking just say my piece about this and people can bitch about it. Uh, fucking Bob Dylan getting the Nobel was one of the biggest insults to the art of poetry I had ever seen given out by a prestigious committee like that. That means a group of fucking writers. Like, was it even writers? Like, a group of fucking writers sat around and were like, you know who we should really honor this year for their poetry? You know who we should do? Oh, fucking Bob Dylan. Fucking Bob Dylan. A fucking folk singer. There is no other poet we could have given this. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? God. <laughs> oh, I, I can't. Yeah, I, I mean, it pisses me off, man. Uh, I don't. That's all I can say about it. I just don't care. I think it's silly. I think a bunch of people were like, he might die soon. Yeah. They were like, uh, yeah, let's give it to him. It's basically right. poetry. Yeah. Well, it's only poetry if you, yeah, but it's like, it's not, if, it, if we're going to call that poetry, well, okay, then it's not that good. I mean, I'm like, not. Yeah, exactly. Like, even if we did, like, it's not that good. Great songwriter. Yeah. Although I'm not a huge Bob Dylan fan overall. I know Soph is. Uh, yeah, big fan. Yeah. So maybe that's why I get more pissed off about it. Yeah. I love his, like, purposefully nasal kind of asshole voice. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has some, some bangers, dude, some undeniably great songs. Like, there's no denying. Yeah, we gotta stop talking about this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, stop talking about Bob Dylan. So r remains of the day. Fucking Nobel Prize. Right. Anyway, yeah, the Nobel's fucking prestigious. Uh, I'd never read this book. I read. Uh, I have the vintage, uh, vintage uh, paperback. Yeah, which one won the Nobel, or did he just win the Nobel? I think he it just was just won like. It, right? It's just sort yeah, of I don't fucking work. even know how that shit works. Yeah, I guess. 
What did this one win? The Booker Prize? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. The 1989 Booker Prize. What, uh, what version did you read? Um, so I have the Vintage International Paperback. That's the same as me. But I think it's different printings. Yeah, what, uh, what year do you have? Damn title page. Uh, yeah, mine just says 89. Oh, wait. No. Yeah, I don't fucking know. Copyright says 89. Who cares? Yeah. Well, I guess the pages should be slightly off. Alright. So, I think we should probably mention um, sort of the mode in which it was written. So, I mean... Well, do you want to describe it or do you want me to? You go on. Um, so it's, I mean, it's written in the present tense, right? But it's all sort of, it's pr essentially all narration, right? Yeah, like it's it all narrated memory and then we get scenes um, where the narrator is like remembering shit that's happening in the past and it's being presented to us as if it's happening in the present. And that's pretty much the entire novel. So that can make it a little bit... Uh, uh, a little bit of a slog for some people. <clears throat> yeah. um, you found it boring. I kind of... I, I like it anyway. <laughs> well, I had never read this book before. But it is kind of boring. Uh it's, I was excited for it, like I said on the last episode. I was just like, look, I'm excited for this. This guy is a great fucking writer. I can't wait to read one of his most acclaimed novels. And, like, I really enjoyed uh, Never Let Me Go. Yeah, that's his other really big book. Yeah, I thought that was just a brilliant book. Although it's been quite a few years since I've read it, but I remember just having a great initial reaction to it. Uh, so I was excited about this one, but yeah, I found this one a, kind of a slog to get through. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a big part of the reason, though, is because of the mode it's written in, where a lot of it is just heavy narration and just talking about, you know, things the narrator is remembering in the moment. I think there's a little bit to the cadence, too. Like, the cadence is so fucking British. Like, it's like... It's so proper. Yeah. It's British as and shit, not like. very playful, and that's something that is actually, I guess, becomes sort of a part of the story. We'll get to that, but um, a lot there's a lot of talk of witticisms, but not a lot of witticism generally. Well, it's because it's British witticism, dude. It just I don't. Yeah, I don't it's... think we're meant to. I think it's actually fun. <laughs> So there's this prologue, and it kind of sets the scene. And so we kind of get the context. Um, so it's the prologue, July 1956. So that's the actual present time in which, you know, the narrator actually is in the present. So we're post-World War II. Um, a lot of this actual story is happening, though... Um, in like the interwar period and then during world war ii and that's a lot of like sort of 
I guess the big and important context for most of the book. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of a love story, but not really. Yeah. Um, but the, the prologue f- is just setting up sort of the context. So we're post World War Two now, um, and it's going to most of the story is going to be happening really um, in the past. Yeah, the first thing that stood out to me since Stevens is our narrator for throughout the entire thing, uh, we're seeing the entire story through his eyes. Um, in uh, that prologue, the thing that stood out to me most was uh, his reference to a uh, costume, like his clothes that he has to wear. Yeah, so he's a butler, right? Um, that's a story of like a, a man who's like a butler in this great British house where all of this like important shit goes down. He takes a lot of pride in his work. He has a lot of concern about being a gentleman and his duty and all that and greatness. Um, and being greatness somehow by being like adjacent to other great people. But, um, yeah, he talks about like his costume, or which I guess we can think of as. Are we talking about what page are you on, or what? It's what pages are ten you and on? eleven in this edition, uh, where he's discussing his outfit for the journey to like go into the country. But when he talks about the costume, like then there was the question of what sorts of costume would be appropriate on such a journey. And whether or not it was worth my while to invest in a new set of clothes. Like he uses the costume reference. He does that again on page 11. He says, I calculated finally that my savings would be able to meet all the costs I might incur. And in addition, might stretch to the purchase of a new costume. But it's like this, this level of acting out that like you're struck with immediately as if he's playing a part. But yeah, for listeners, like Sophie said, it's important to remember, uh, this was obviously written much more recently, but it was uh, based in this time when, I mean, there's still very much like a feudal system uh, <laughs> in place where like, if you weren't born wealthy, like your best chance at like class status or like respect was to like work for a family, like in their like feudal system, like serve them like uh yeah, so, and so, like, basically, our, our main guy, Stevens, he has been a butler for this guy, um, Lord Darlington, for a really long time, and Darlington is dead, so we are sort of dropped in where um, this guy, Faraday, is taking over Darlington Hall, and he's telling Stevens that, like, he needs to take a vacation while Faraday goes away or something. He's like, yeah, here, take my car, um, go for a drive. And Stevens is like, why the fuck would I do that? I don't take breaks. Like, I don't want a vacation. But yeah. ultimately, he decides to, and that's sort of the basis for the story. So every chapter is split up into, like, one of the days and locations of his drive. Um and that's essentially like the setting that and like his memory of Darlington Hall. 
And it's funny, yeah. right? Uh, right as I was reading this book, I was finishing watching Downton Abbey. Like, finished <laughs> watching that. And uh, it was just like, I finished the series right before I started reading this, but it was just so... I mean, you see all that happening right there. I mean, it's not as not obviously this story, but it's uh, you know, you have a house like a very wealthy old house, like British family that is is losing. It's you know, post World War One, a lot of these families were losing their grandeur uh, and their money, more importantly, <laughs> which is, and you get to see that kind of happen. It's like the house is decaying, and they're trying to like kind of desperately keep it up, and yeah, it's crazy. But that was one of the things I noticed about Stevens right away was he's so married to the job. Like he's so incredibly formal and like obsessed with professionalism and like kind of detached from like normal human emotion. Um, yeah, that's a good point, dude. I was I, I think that's part of what made the book kind of a slog. Yeah. Is because he was the narrator and he so rarely let on how he was feeling about. Well, yeah, I mean, that comes up a lot. I mean, even from the beginning, right? He talks about, um, (laughs) he talks about bantering. Yeah. And how his banter isn't up to snuff with the new master or whatever, a new head of household. Embarrassing uh, as those moments were for me, I would not wish to imply that I in any way blame Mr. Faraday, who is in no sense an unkind person. He was, I'm, I am sure, merely enjoying the sort of bantering, which in the United States no doubt is a sign of a good, friendly understanding between employer and employee, indulged in as a kind of affectionate sport. Yeah, there's a uh, lot of shots at Americans in this book. Yeah, so I should. Uh, I guess we should say Far, um, Farrington, Farrington, Faraday, Faraday, and Darlington. Jesus Christ, Faraday is American. Yeah, so he sort of he sort of presents this idea that he's like, I'm going to have to get better at bantering. It is quite possible then that my employer fully expects me to respond to his bantering in a like manner and considers my failure to do so a form of negligence. So it's like this really formal approach to even anything remotely human or personal, like personal or even just personable. It's just, I think it's just, it's just so British, dude. It's just so. Well, it's intentionally, I feel like it's intentionally just so fucking British. Yeah. And it's set at this time, like the crumbling of the British Empire. <laughs> yeah, and he like tries to make a joke. <clears throat> and, so, and I followed this with a suitably modest smile to indicate without ambiguity that I had made a witticism, since I did not wish Mr. Faraday to restrain any spontaneous mirth he felt out of a misplaced respectfulness. Mr. Faraday, however, simply looked up at me and said, I beg your pardon, Stevens. I mean, like, that was, the f- like, I think one of the first points at which I might have laughed when I was reading. Yeah. Because it was such, like, a, you know, a clinical um, dissection of what 
<laughs> what was going on in his mind and like what he, how he was attempting to be humorous. Yeah. Uh, I remember you texting me telling me that you, you found it. This is your second time reading the book. So it's like, you said it was funnier the second time. Like, yeah, it was a lot easier for me to see where he was being like funny. Right. For me to pick up on the, because it, it's subtle because it stays in that tone, you know, he's like, I wanted there to be no ambiguity that I had in fact made a witticism. Like it's so unfunny that, but trying to be like the character is not that the book is like failing at being funny, but it took me time to figure that out. That's where I pointed out on page 17 there, right below that interaction where he says, but at the same time, I cannot escape the feeling that Mr. Faraday is not satisfied with my responses to his various banterings. And I was just like, you know, we don't get anybody else's perspective. So I was just like, you know, like, is this dissatisfaction that he's feeling like real or imagined? Yeah. And I think maybe that's one of the things that we kind of start to figure out over the course of the novel is that like a lot of people actually don't know what the fuck is actually going on with him because he refuses, you know, to say anything about himself. That's real. Yeah. Like he withholds all, all of his like true humanity. Right after we get through the prologue section, I wrote down in my notes, very British. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you could have written that on every fucking page. Yeah, I, it's, that was the point when I was reading this, taking notes, that I was like, oof, 20 pages in, this is British as shit. Uh, br- I can only take so much, like, Britishness. In, you know, in doses. Yeah. Uh, so. Page 34, yeah. where he talks about his idea of being a good butler. Uh, like he's kind of obsessed with this idea of uh, of dignity, and I guess this starts on page thirty four, but I haven't marked that. It also goes through to page forty one to some extent. Oh yeah, he like starts a... bringing up the question. Are you talking about the greatness question? Uh. He starts talking yeah. about like what is a great butler on page uh, thirty one. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit past that where I say like the yeah. dignity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So greatness and dignity very quickly come into the conversation as he's sort of explaining to the reader as though in a diary 
what it means to be a great butler. Um, and there is a tone to it of like uh, older, nearing retirement, uh, you know, butler teaching or trying to relay lessons to young butlers or whatever. There's a lot of like, you know, old man being like, well, you know, it's, it's not the same as it was in my day. Like, Yeah, and this comes up in the context of gossip. So like professionals who are too gossipy and you start talking about like who are the great butlers and like even giving examples and picking them apart well when he talks about dignity on page 34 he goes um this is like he says at the top of it i would like if i may to try and say here what i think that this dignity to be and then we have literally pages of him trying to explain this. But the part that I highlighted, uh, probably third paragraph on that page 34, second sentence in, where he says, But those same absent attributes, I would argue, are every time those of a superficial and decorative order. Attributes that are attractive, no doubt, as icing on the cake, but are not pertaining to what is really essential. I refer to things such as good accent and command of language, general knowledge of wide-ranging topics such as falconing or newt-mating, attributes none of which my father could have boasted. Now we get to the father comparison, the tragic, the, the classic, I guess, archetype yeah. at this point. Now it must be remembered that my father was a butler of an earlier generation. Yeah, I mean, this is like an important conversation that keeps coming up throughout um throughout the book this idea of greatness and professionalism and dignity as being a really important component of what he understands greatness to be and ultimately like you know how he understands his father or what he saw as greatness in his father so his father ends up coming up a lot as an example Well, that's the thing, yeah, because it was a class thing, particularly in his father's generation, because of this feudal-like system that was being run over there. Well, yeah, and they were, you know, butlers at the same house. Yeah. And it was like, it was this generational thing, too. Like, that wasn't, like, unusual. It was like, like, if you were born into this aristocracy, if you were the butler, uh, you were still, you know, more high high higher up in the status uh hierarchy you know than somebody who was just whatever you know farming or whatever yeah uh, so well, it was something you could like you would want your children to like you know whatever yeah and he tells a story that his father tells him i'm on page 36 he says, I believe the telling and retelling of this story was as close as my father ever came to reflecting critically on the profession he practiced. As such, it gives a vital clue to his thinking. And so he tells a story about, okay, um, the story was apparently an apparently true one concerning a certain butler who had traveled with his employer to India and served there for many years, maintaining amongst the native staff the same high standards that he had commanded in England. One afternoon, evidently, this butler had entered the dining room to make sure all was well for dinner 
when he noticed a tiger languishing beneath the dining table. The butler had left the dining room quietly, taking care to close the doors behind him and proceeded calmly to the drawing room where his employer was taking tea with a number of visitors. There he attracted his employer's attention with a polite cough, then whispered in the latter's ear, I'm very sorry, sir, but there appears to be a tiger in the dining room. Perhaps you will permit the twelve boars to be used. And according to legend, a few minutes later, the employer and his guests heard three gunshots. Um, and the last phrase, no discernible traces left of the recent occurrence by that time, my father would repeat with a laugh and shake his head admiringly. And he, he, I guess he reflects on this more as you get further into the book. It's not even that long of a book. I mean, it's like 200 pages in this edition. Like, uh, I read it in a couple of days, even though I was a little, you know, kind of a slog for me, but so it's a pretty readable book. He's got a very readable style. Uh, like his writing style is very, re you know, you move through it very seamlessly. It's like, you know, you just ride the wave. But when he talks about, like, uh, or Stevens, rather, uh, the character, you know, like when he goes into those peasants or, like, those farmers in the country, uh, he considers himself superior to them. Oh, yeah. But then, like, when we well, meet him, we're seeing, like, he heck, it's because he hangs around with all these other people but he even considers himself superior to the people that he works with for the most part right well and because that position that he kind yeah. of loves like oh he does yeah i think I, they make that very clear as clear as the character can with everything else since the character like you said stevens himself is does seem very cold and is yeah usually dishonest about well, and I think that's sort of presented as, like, the ultimate dignity, almost, or he mistakes it for what dignity is, is that, like, you know, this quiet butler who, like, calmly goes and taps, you know, his employer on the shoulder while he's with company and says, like, excuse me, sir, there's a tiger underneath the table in the dining room, like, would you please permit me to handle it? Instead of, like, running and being like, holy shit, dude, there's, like, a tiger <laughs> in the house. What the fuck is going on? Yeah, and there's this, uh, there was this constant theme in the book about this, like, sacrifice. This, and and, and not, like, a pleasant, like, the suffering of sacrifice. Was well, and huge... restraint. Well, yeah. I was, like, he's always saying, like, I was obliged, and I hope you will excuse my whatever. You know? There's a lot, a lot of restraint. And even almost, like, a resentment um, toward the end. To that restraint. Yeah. He just... And he, he talks about that as... The remains of the day? Well... <laughs> Uh, more about like that dignity as he lays out those examples where like this idea of sacrifice for the dignity <clears throat> of it and uh yeah well i think the another really important thing is that all this shit gets mixed up so he's going on this trip and all of this crap gets mixed up because he's like well we're kind of understaffed at darlington hall i'm gonna go see 
this old bitch that used to work with me because I've been writing her and I swear she expressed in her last letter that she was like, I want to come back. And he keeps sort of insinuating that she says that she wants to come back and only, you know, so late in the novel before he's about to see her, does he actually say, actually, like, I'm not so sure that's what she was saying. I don't think anywhere in her letter she actually said that and um, starts to sort of doubt his initial impulse to go see her or and he keeps sort of claiming that it's like for this professional reason he's like you know really early on in the novel he's like oh well you know she's married now but her marriage is clearly ending in failure um he says at this very moment no doubt she is pondering with regret decisions made in the far off past that I have now left her deep in middle age, so alone and desolate. And it is easy to see how in such a frame of mind, the thought of returning to Darlington Hall would be a great comfort to her. That's on page 48, my copy. Yeah. Like in the, right in the middle of the page. Indeed, all in all, I cannot see why the option of her returning to Darlington Hall and seeing out her working years there should not offer a very genuine consolation to a life that has come to be so dominated by a sense of waste. So he's like putting, like, that's fucking heavy. Well, he's he's he, justifying why he's going to take the trip. He's not even just justifying, though. He's, like, evaluating her whole life. He's like, oh, well, her marriage is ending in failure, and clearly the entire thing was a fucking waste. <laughs> yeah, like, he's he's telling and himself. Well, he, he gives us no actual evidence, except that on the next page, um, he says, she begins one sentence, although I have no idea how I shall usefully fill the remainder of my life. Um... And again, elsewhere, she writes, the rest of my life stretches out as an emptiness before me. But he only gives us, like, those pieces. Like, the first one isn't even a complete sentence. So already it feels like he's, like, you know, morphing her words in his mind and picking apart phrases and trying to read them for what he wants rather than what is actually there. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, he does this the entire time, but yeah, I mean, he's creating the story to justify his going out there at all. I mean, later on there, I mean, he has to use going to see if she wants to work at Darlington again. He uses that as the reason to take a vacation. Like, he can't even take a vacation uh, or, you know, some time off without first running through this rationalization process and 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 how it's going to be dedicated to his position and his his duty or dignity to his job, right? The dignity befitting his position, I think, is what he says all the time. Yeah, and he starts to talk about, like, watching his father lose that dignity because his father works at Darlington Hall until his death like he he dies there um uh, that and, was the most riveting part of the entire novel dude the yeah, scenes that was the most painful scene the scenes with his father like that whole like what is it like 40 pages 50 pages yeah. of just 
his dad coming to work there, the talks he was having with him, his dad getting ill. And then yeah, it's just this, like, that's one of the most, like the flashbacks to the father, I think. I mean, if this was like, could have ended there for me. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, well, he even like hints at that really early on. On page 49, he says, I was so fond, uh, Miss Kenton writes, I was so fond of that view from the second floor bedrooms overlooking the lawn with the downs visible in the distance. Is it still like that? On summer evenings, there was a sort of magical quality to that view, and I will confess to you now that I used to waste many precious minutes standing at once at, or at one of those windows, just enchanted by it. And then she goes on to add, if this is a painful memory, forgive me, but I will never forget that time we both watched your father walking back and forth in front of the summer house, looking down at the ground as though he hoped to find some precious jewel he had dropped there. And then later, he, um, he says in, Stephen says in his narration, and it was there my father's figure could be seen, pacing slowly with an air of preoccupation, indeed, as Miss Kenton puts it so well, as though he hoped to find some precious jewel he had dropped there. Um, so it's weird, because already, like, you know, Miss Kenton is framing it as something that's painful. So, like, we know that this isn't, like, a positive... <laughs> like, the view is nice, but it's not a positive moment. She's having, like, this nostalgic sort of experience of remembering this but is aware that it could potentially bring up you know the idea of watching his father sort of slip away um and clearly like not being sure of what it was he had been trying to accomplish in that moment when usually like obviously like his father was a butler too and there's always sort of a clear goal in mind and something to be done that's very specific. Every There's a rule for everything. So to just sort of him in the distance not knowing what he's doing seems like it would be a painful memory for Stevens. But it's not really presented as one with the exception of that repeated phrase. And then he goes on to bitch about, you know, employees getting married and shit. And how it's silly. And his uh, his reference to uh, when that one guy asked him to tell his friends, talk to his friend's son about sex. <laughs> and he has to like explain to this like guy about like sex, and he like can't do it. And like, yeah, is that during like the Treaty of Versailles? Uh, page. Like, uh... Oh yeah. Yeah, I yeah, guess there's this whole thing where they talk about the Treaty of Versailles. <laughs> and basically like Lord Darlington had invited a bunch of people from, you know, um, you know, a lot of important people from a lot of, you know, participating countries uh, in yeah. the Second World War or or in the First World War, I mean as rich folk. Um and you know, discussing the added the current attitudes toward germany um and somewhere in there there's like some important kid some like young cardinal or something right he's like 
I don't know who he is, honestly. I can't even remember. But it's like uh, somebody, one of the guest's sons or like a nephew yeah. of Darlington or something. Uh, and he's asks his butler to like have a talk with him about the birds and the bees, like a sex talk. And like, a... yeah, because like that kid's dad asked <clears throat> Darlington to do it. But Darlington's like, I can't. And he's like, hey, Stevens, will you talk to this dude? about fucking <laughs> and like because he's about it's... to get married and he has no idea what fucking is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like that's how it's sort of framed yeah yeah that's fucking funny yeah did you know that's bullshit that's why i kept changing the topic but it's funny, like what it shows He's is twenty five, this... but he has no idea what it means to have yeah, sex. He never visited <laughs> any of that, yeah. <laughs> uh what the fuck was I gonna say? But it's yeah, it's an example of of Darlington or, you know, the guy, this rich, powerful guy, you know, shrugging off responsibility. And putting it on Stevens, and Stevens, yeah. Stevens knows that's what he's doing, but he takes that very seriously. He takes that as like an honor, as like, oh wow, he's depending on me, even for something this silly, like going to talk to this twenty-five-year-old about fucking. Well, or not even where, like where shirking responsibility, is... but like, um, is just so grateful to be a part of it. Like, because he calls it greatness, like these great men who like make the world move and it, it eventually sort of comes out that in, uh, in the years, I guess, following World War Two, I think, um, Darlington was sort of revealed to be maybe a bit of a the Nazi sympathizer essentially right. um, and was sort of shat on by the general public and was not, was not looked upon kindly. Um, and Stevens rejects this view. And you don't, we don't find that out till the end though. Uh... Yeah, but it's hinted at throughout. And yeah. there's a lot of reference to like, especially like during the, a treaty of versailles scenes well yeah, uh, yeah. there's a lot of there's uh, like a lot of reference to like the smell of like stuff that's burning and there's and, that uh that great scene at the end with that one guy that one writer who's like explaining to stevens like that like this basically darlington's ignorant as shit and like has no idea what he's trying to do like or He's straight up sympathetic to Nazi. <laughs> like, if that's not the case. Like, yeah. yeah. So, like, and then Darlington kind of doesn't know how to process it. But, I mean, that's, like, the that's the reveal. That's, like, the big, you know, reveal at the end kind of thing. Oh, fuck. I'm about to sneeze. Yeah. Oh, fuck. <coughs> oh, we'll leave that in. <laughs> yeah, so there's this American dude and this French dude, I think like bitching that's a lot of like the conference the death of his father though 
like, like I said, I found this to be one of the most um, very, uh, very Wharton-like, dude. Very. Uh, oh, it was so painful. Yeah. It hurt. Yeah, so we got this in like in really intense scene. Um, but even that, like his father, like when his father tells him he's proud of him. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Well, even the scene where it's like they he finds his father, and I guess he's like essentially having a stroke or something, and he's like pushing this cart but he's like stuck in this position just like in pain and can't move. And so they like have to take him up to bed and sort of hide him essentially. Um, And Stevens is running around and he's like, I'm incredibly busy at the moment. Um, So he's like, can't, I can't attend to my dying father. Um, Yeah. The part I have highlighted off is just the end there when he's, his dad is, it's like, I'm glad yeah. father's feeling so much better, I said again, eventually. Yeah, now, he also calls his father father, to Like, yeah. you know, but like in the third person, he's like, he'll say to his father, I'm <clears> glad <throat> father is feeling so much better. Like, it's really fucking weird. I don't know if that's like a British thing, but that just, it, it seems so weird. And he also like talks to his father in a really professional manner. Right. I guess that's how his father talked to him. Yeah. He, he says, his father says, I hope I've been a good father to you. And he says, I laughed a little and said, I'm so glad you're feeling better now. I'm proud of you. A good son. I hope I've been a good father to you. I suppose I haven't. I'm afraid we're extremely busy now, but we can talk again in the morning. My father was still looking at his hands as though he he were faintly irritated by them. I'm so glad you're feeling better now, I said again, and took my leave. So it's like, like he can't get out of the job thing. It's a, yeah, it's a glimpse into his character. Well, it's just so fucking, like, it feels cold, but, like, it's also, it's also just, like, what he ultimately reveals, like, he thinks is, like, the thing his father would have done, too, and he describes it as a sense of triumph, and that's, like, sort of where that chapter ends, after his father dies. It's, uh, yeah, it's the, um... Basically, I wrote down his father was basically confessing to him that he's, you know, he's afraid that he wasn't a very good father and that perhaps he, you know, he's trying to confess basically that perhaps he told him, it's almost ironic in that moment, right? He's telling him, perhaps I steered you the wrong way with that kind of putting work and dignity above all else, like dignity of this position, yeah, he sure says like perhaps I haven't good, been like a good father, and he's like, "Well, don't be silly. We'll talk in the morning." And his dad's clearly dying. Yeah, um, something you and say like also somewhere in here, there's like this really intense discussion of professionalism from this American guy, Mr. Lewis, who's like, you know, at this conference that has to do with the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah, 
These long ass sentences did at the end of that day two section. Yeah. Morning. This is even so. If you consider the the pressures contingent on me that night, you may not think I delude myself unduly if I go so far as to suggest that I did perhaps display, in the face of everything, at least in some modest degree, a dignity, worth, worthy of someone like Mr. Marshall, or come to that, my father. Indeed, why should I deny it? For all its sad associations, whenever I recall that evening today, I find I do so with a large sense of triumph. Yeah, I would also... Yeah, he, triumph is an interesting word. Well, he thinks that he's fulfilling his dignity. Like he th That's what he thinks. Like he lives for this because, as we learn throughout the novel, he has nothing else. He has no wife, no family. Like, he never... Uh, yeah no he lives and breathes just his professional life and is like it seems like he's entirely closed off from his own emotional life as a result and so there's like a lot of discuss the uh, discussion of what professionalism is and like this american guy is critiquing the idea of an english sense of professionalism and and he sort of like puts professionalism up against honor. Um, well, he considers them one and the same. Yeah. Well, he says, you know, um, it's uh, but yeah, this this I would put on his triumph over his triumph of service over despite his father's death, which he does admit even if he's just saying it as a formality, sad associations. Uh, even, I guess, I don't, we don't know if he means it or not. Because it seems like he's just not even a real person at that point. Like, he's just like this... Oh, robot. Yeah, and will we also, like, get a scene of Miss Kenton crying to Stevens about right. his father's death. <clears throat> and like, I'm so sorry. You know? And because Stevens, like, didn't express his pain, even though we know he was feeling it, because I think, I think it's Lord Darlington that keeps asking him if he's all right. Right, yeah. And eventually we're like, oh, you're crying, dude. <laughs> you know. Um, he's just... But, like, yeah, he sees that as a sense of triumph when everyone else seems to see it as, like, yo, you need to, like go have a cry. <laughs> um, but I feel like we should talk about sort of later on. In his, like the only thing I'll, you know, if we're going to be sympathetic to Stevens in that situation, the only thing I can think of is like, well, I guess, like, if he was in the middle of something, like, I don't know, but I guess it's it's so drastic in terms of, like, it's not like you're just in the middle of something, like, your parent is dying. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, he puts the service above. Yeah, I'm trying to find, so there are, like, a couple of interesting moments with Miss Kenton, where it's, like, they're constantly trying to negotiate their relationship, and Miss Kenton is, like, pushing to be more personable, and Stevens is, like, pushing her away. 
um, there's an incident like where Darlington essentially says we probably shouldn't have any Jews working for us <laughs> which is he later reveals as like oh I've made a mistake that was totally wrong of me I fucked up but at some point he's like yeah we can't we can't have any Jews working for us. So this is like, I I don't remember when this is, um, when we are in time, but it would be like immediately before the world, the second world war or during it. Um, or like at the beginning. Right. Um, and he talks to Miss Kenton and says like, yeah, it's two of, you know, the girls that work for you essentially, or that you oversee. We're gonna have to let them go. God, dude, she, this is she gets all upset. three three episodes, dude, and we've talked about Jewish the Jewish thing every fucking episode, <laughs> dude. Like every fucking episode, the Jewish thing comes up. Like, oh my god, yeah, it's hot right now. <laughs> it's hot for like a fucking hundred years. It seems like Jesus. Yeah, man, get with it. <laughs> um, the Jewish question. Uh... <laughs> A Jewish question with Andy and Sophie. of leaving um, and she gets all like upset with him after he lets them go what uh and, what page are you on um i'm on, at the top of 154 where well it's really the bottom i guess of 153 onto 154 yeah. where um she's miss kenton is like saying i felt really strongly about what happened and like she had threatened to leave if um stevens actually let these girls go and um you know she confronts him about it and says like i can't believe that happened i really thought of leaving this place he's like i'm surprised you're still here <laughs> um but at, at this point um Darlington has already said clearly like oh I that was wrong of me I fucked up um yeah that's he like he like even before then like he yeah they fire those Jewish maids and then like a year later he just is like yeah it was wrong like yeah but um, it is this kind of like 
what on on what I'm right when she's talking about Ruth and Sarah leaving the the when they <laughs> they then they fire the Jewish housemaids uh, for anti because they're anti Semitic or whatever. Uh, there's a. Uh, but she's asking him, why, Mr. Stevens, why, why, why do you always have to pretend? Yeah, that's the important part of this yeah. whole thing, I think. Like, because she's basically saying, like, he's like, oh, yeah, well, he expresses how incredibly unfortunate it was that, you know, he made this decision. So it's always put in the language of, like, oh, it was unfortunate. Yeah, it's very British. And it was, like, a terrible misunderstanding. And... Um, Miss Kenton says, as I recall, you thought it was only right and proper that Ruth and Sarah be hacking. You were positively cheerful about it because Stevens is now being like, oh, well, you know, it was a terrible mistake and it was very unfortunate. And, you know, I'm so glad it's been put right, uh, which it hasn't like it hasn't been put right. Um, and, and, uh... and so she gets fed up and she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Like, that is not what you presented at the time. You only changed your mind because Darlington did. And so that's when she was like, why, why, why do you always have to pretend? And, like, is so fed up. And I think that's when sort of she comes to her boiling point. And this idea of, like, pretending, this this playing the part that is supposed to, that one is supposed to play is, like, the stressing theme of all this, right? Like, he... Literally, I think the the Stevens character. I mean, we have to take his word for it. That's all we have here. I mean, obviously, it's fictional words or whatever. But you know, he probably actually does believe that it was put right, right? Because yeah, he believes that you know. Well, that's his problem. He's all too willing to believe anything that because he believes Darlington to be a great man, because he believes his father to be a great butler who worked for a great man, and that he should follow in his footsteps. That like, and he says over and over again, he shouldn't pretend to like, you know, meddle in the, but even, you know, affairs of important people. Even more so, than like, that. So like on occasion they'll ask him his like input, and he'll be like, oh no 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 no. Even more than and that. And they make a mockery of him. He does it. Point. He does it because he believes that's what a great butler is supposed to do. Like it's like it's there's no like he's. I guess that's why he comes off as so cold is because maybe it is just like a cold, like it's the belief that like this, he's fulfilling an obligation that he feels is required or <clears throat> at least his position requires him. Uh, yeah. So to disagree with, you know, uh, Darlington or the head of house uh, would be unbecoming of a dignified butler. Yeah, but he doesn't even consider that a possibility that they're wrong, right? Like he right, well, because that would be beneath him. He would he, he would consider to their that. position because he genuinely believes that they have the correct position because they are more informed and generally, you know, somehow better or above him, which well, is not how he frames it, but is like right. what the assumption is. Or like that's what's required. It's 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 it's. But he of... never anywhere gives any hint that at any given moment he really disagrees with Darlington, regardless right. of how much Darlington might change his mind on a specific issue. 
he always uh, just agrees with him. He's like, yeah, well, it was surely the correct decision. It was wise, and I'm sure he made it with great care, and I agree with him. Yeah. And this, uh, the idea of pretending and playing the part, and I always bring back that word, a choice of word, costume, where he just uh, is referencing, I mean, yeah, like that choice of words for your, your what you're supposed to wear. Yeah, well, it's costume, it's like pretending, and it's also a sense of responsibility. Like, that's... Um, he always brings up responsibility. Yeah, a butler of any quality must be seen to inhabit his role utterly and fully. He cannot be seen casting it aside one moment, simply to don it again the next, as though it were nothing more than a pantomime costume. Yeah. Well, and there's like, it's also, you know, he narrates in a very removed way. He uses one in place of like, I. Well, right after one that. One realizes with hindsight. What's well, that I mean? Like, it's, I mean, this guy's like autistic or something. Yeah, well, I mean, he does seem awkward as shit. Like, yeah. when he gets stuck, it, like, when the car runs out of fuel on his drive and he gets stuck and he has to like stay with these like I don't know what would you call it country types yeah but he says that in that was one... like a moment where I was like oh Stevens you're such a big bitch on page 169 right after that quote I read about the butler of inequality uh, he says uh, there is one situation and one situation only in which a butler who cares about his dignity may feel free to unburden himself of his role that is to say when he is entirely alone. <laughs> yeah. When he is entirely alone. That's why <laughs> right before that, that's like it comes up because Miss Kenton, he's remembering a time when Miss Kenton caught him reading during his off hour, like in his office or something. She's always like trying to bring in flowers to like pep it up. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Bringing flowers in here, you dumb bitch. I don't want these. But he's, like, reading this novel, and she's like, show me what you're reading. And then she seems, like, really concerned, and she's like, really? Like, why won't you show me what you're reading? Is it, like, some weird Nazi shit? Like, what the fuck are you reading? <laughs> and she, like, rips it out of his hands, essentially. And, like, he won't look at her, and he's, like, reading this romance novel. And she's like, why the fuck are you <laughs> hiding this? Like, and he was so... Like, you can tell, like, he doesn't say it this way, but he's like, I am so ashamed, clearly. Um, he and that's pretends he that he's not ashamed discussion. of it. Yeah. yeah. He, he goes he on. He does pretend. He goes on. I mean, that's the whole thing. So it's 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 how you view the character Stevens. I mean, again, this is a fictional person, so it's not like it matters, but it's like if you view him as he believes what he's saying or or not kind of thing. Like, it's this kind of, you know limited view of his of his or if it isn't i mean i mean it definitely is because we always see his little fragments of his memories essentially that's the whole story yeah. i think this might be one of my favorite um scenes though with the romance novel and he was like i swear you know it's just for the lady visitors yeah. and you know i thought it might be helpful <laughs> to develop my so the plots are absurd. english language yeah. <laughs> The plots are absurd and a little sentimental. Yeah, he's like, you know, 
and because I should have a good accent and a good command of language. So he's like explaining like why all of this dialogue in this romance novel is like, you know, of use to him, not to like Miss Kenton, but to the reader. <laughs> To himself essentially right because this is kind of written almost like a diary it's like jesus chill like read a romance novel you're clearly lacking romance and eventually miss kenton leaves right she's like i'm gonna go get married maybe i might go get married and she's like nudging him and being like how do you how do you feel about that <laughs> and he's like well okay if that's your choice and he's like very closed off about it and so ultimately and he's aware that she's upset too because he like they have this encounter but it is his like uh his whole thing i'm seeing on page 172 where he's talking to kenton uh he says, I gave a small laugh. In my experience, I said, too many people believe themselves capable of working at these higher levels without having the least idea of the exacting demands involved. It is certainly not suited to just anybody. Yeah. Oh, where? I want to find... Um... He just... he. Again, he clings to this butler thing. He clings to the dignity of being a butler. Because one, he has nothing else, but also because of the the, the feudal like system set up there, it gives him what he believes to be an air of superiority, an air of not everybody can do this, but I can. Which is probably there's some truth in that. I mean, it's. I mean, you could argue he does his job too well, but. Uh, oh yeah, he he also talks about these turning points. But like, Kenton. but everything, like everything he does, is like it comes from the justification of what he views as his position. Like this position, yeah, of is everything to him. It's um, this desperate, uh, not even desperate. It's like automatic to him. Like you talk about when his car breaks down, and those like farmers or country folk or whatever he calls them, they're like, <clears throat> they just. I mean, these people, uh, uh, he pities them almost, like... Yeah, well, he speaks down of them, but at the same time, he's also trying to get in with them because he's like, I'm going to try to make a joke. And it doesn't really go over, and he doesn't really like their reaction to his joke, or he's not satisfied with it. And so it's just like he's asserting simultaneously that he is above them while also trying to well, be accepted by them. And they keep asserting, you know, that he's not actually an English gentleman. Like they do it kind of not in a mean way or a teasing way even. They just do it where they keep being like, My like blimey, I thought you were a gentleman. Where you yeah. talk where you talk, eh? <laughs> where you talk you talk so good where you do. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how British people talk? I don't know. Totally. I've watched... Uh, I've, I've watched Love, Dial Love Island. Is that a British Sounds show? Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you worked up Darlington Hall. 
Well, he doesn't want to tell him yeah. that he worked at Darlington because everybody knows. So, yeah. Ultimately, there's this idea that, you know, clearly he's in love with Miss Kenton. Uh, Miss Kenton clearly wants him to express that because she is like waiting for him to be like, hey, actually, you shouldn't get married because I love you and we should get married and have babies. But, it's also also a plot on Downton Abbey, which I guess they yeah. took from this. Although they did get married, but yeah, but that never happened. So he like comes to visit her, and it ends with like this like really sad conversation between them. So like they meet for tea. God, so fucking British, dude. Yeah, I know. God, dude, I remember when I went, if you, you're, when I flew to England, dude, on the plane, dude, fucking nine hours, they give you, like, these tea servings, like, this, like, a fucking tea service, twice during that flight, and they gave, I don't know if they still do this because of cost, but this was, like, early 2000s, and, like, they gave us, like, these, these nasty, like, British finger sandwiches, like, cheese sandwiches and shit. And like toast points, and then they gave us this. Like, they asked if we wanted tea or coffee. And like, at that age, I wasn't drinking either. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, goddamn British. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude. All this meeting for tea. Do they they actually meet for tea? Doesn't she not show up? No, they meet for tea. What am I thinking of? Um. I intend to go with her without your blessing, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why I keep thinking of a bus stop. Yeah, no, they do end up at a bus stop. Honestly, dude, I stopped taking notes on, like, the last 50 pages. I was just so ready for it to end. I don't know if it's because this book was just so talked about or, like, so... uh, You know, when you build everything up to, like, oh, my God, this is a masterpiece, and then... I don't know. I guess because I already kind of knew the ending. Yeah, Because so, it was so famous. Yeah. So she's Miss Ben now. He goes to meet her in the town where she lives, where she's married. Um, they have a really nice time. It's really neat. They had a really neat... <laughs> they have a really neat time. And, you know, not a lot happens. But... He eventually says, you know, so he's like, I'll, I'll take you to your bus stop or whatever, and I'll wait with you. And he asks her about that sentence in her letter that, you know, you know, emptiness stretches out before her. That's what we assume that he's referring to. He says, I was a little worried when I read them, but I see now that I had little reason to be and she says oh what things in particular and he says oh nothing in particular and then he says yeah he does say it um the rest of my life stretches out like an emptiness before me some words to that effect and she laughs a little and she's like oh i couldn't have written any such thing he says oh you did though um, I, I recall it very clearly. He's like, yeah, you said it kind of like this or something to that effect. And then he's like, no, but really, you said this. I remember it very specifically. 
And she's like, oh, dear. Well, perhaps there are some days when I feel like that, but, you know, they pass. And, like, basically explaining to him the nature of marriage. <sighs> and, like, Stevens has been this person that, like, in some ways she's, like, kind of been writing to almost longingly, but he's also, like, reading into it, not realizing, like, oh, she's, like, in a real relationship with a family, a husband, and... Like, this is just a day. Like, it's not her entire life that she actually feels this way. Um, so well, that's that's this... part of the reveal, too, is part of the reveal at the end here with Ken, with Miss Kenton, with him hanging out with those, like, you know, country, British country folk, with him having this kind of revelation at the end of the little maybe Darlington is uh, really not a good guy. Like, it's this, it's the kind of crumbling of the little narrative he tells himself, right? Like, this little story that he tells himself to justify his endless devotion to this, what he views as the most important thing of his job, which is to occupy the position fully, you know, with dignity. Uh, yeah. And it's and like well, the shattering of that entire thing is like the big revelation, uh, you know, and that's, it's through these three, those three series of events, really, that he really... Well, I think it's really, yeah, and that during his meeting with Miss Kenton, where they actually have the discussion of, like, would we have had a, like, would you have had a better life with me? Should we have run off together, essentially? And ultimately, you know, so she says, you know, that doesn't mean to say, of course, that, like, there aren't occasions now and then, you know, these desolate occasions when you think to yourself, what a terrible mistake I've made with my life. And you get to thinking about a different life, a better life you might have had. For instance, I get to thinking about a life I might have had with you, Mr. Stevens. But there's no turning back the clock now. Um, and I can't dwell on what might have been. And it takes him a minute to respond. And he's like, oh, you're right. There's no turning back the clock. And it's just like, ugh. Ugh, God. So painful. I um, have wasted my life. Yeah, I have wasted my life. Lying that's, on a hammock at William Duffy's farm. And, yep, and that's really where this novel ends. I have wasted my life. I've wasted my life not fucking this woman and also serving a potential Nazi sympathizer, who I still respect nonetheless, but, you know, I was... We were great men. Indeed. It's, and there's, uh, of course, the final passage where he mentions the remains of the day. Yeah, it's a good title. Yeah, it is a good title. He's got a yeah, good style. He's, like, still in the town, and he's, like, looking at... He's waiting for the pier lights to light up. And he's, like, watching people be in groups together and, like, socializing God. and being excited by these lights. Makes and me... And he's, like, ugh. It's just uh, so soul-crushing. I'll tell you, dude, it makes me think of Gatsby. This fucking, these goddamn lights on piers, dude. They're just, yeah. every time it shows up. One, it's a great way to end something. <clears throat> just because that image is so clear to most people, I feel like. And it's just such a, that longing of looking at like this kind of, uh, you know, lights over the bay or lights on the pier or... There's a reliability to it, too, in the image that just makes it usually cause yeah. for good. 
Well, it's like a moment of excitement, but it's exciting in large part because you're like in a group of people that are like celebrating it as some kind of ritual that he is not actually participating in, but observing. He's like, he's always like trying to be a participant, but not really like in these moments where he's like on this trip and progressively more so throughout his journey. Well, it's also this kind of looming theme throughout the whole thing, where it's like he's nearing the age of retirement. Like he's nearing the age where he's no longer going to work. Or be useful or is like, you know, getting to the place where he's like getting old enough that he's going to become his father soon. Do we know how old Ishiguro was when he wrote this? He wasn't that old, right? He was like maybe 40. I don't know. I don't know. I think he's in his 60s now. It was published in 89. Yeah, I think I think I think but I think Ishiguro is in like his sixties or something now. Like he's so I guess uh, he was probably thirties, forties then, like He was born yeah, so he's sixty six now. He was born in fifty four. So Let's this see. is like uh, yeah, I mean this this kind of end of career. I haven't really looked up any interviews or anything that would be interesting. He was thirty five when this was published. Okay, so he probably wrote it even when he was younger, so yeah, this is, uh, I mean, he's a great writer. I mean, his style is really, it's good. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of this book just because I found it a little, a little yeah, bit of a slog. A, a, a new book that just came out this year called Clara and the Sun or Clara and the Sun. I don't know how you're <clears> supposed <throat> to pronounce yeah. her name. Check that one out. That'd be good. Yeah, check it out. Um, I still have to read Never Let Me Go, but that's his other really big one that everyone talks about. The, and I, I think that's it. I mean, I haven't read all his stuff, but uh, really I've just I think read... people consider that like his masterpiece. Yeah, um, that's the best book of his I've read, considering I've only read two now, that and this. But I, I love... I still, I still love this book. I think, you know, it's an interesting look at like at least as a character study and to look at how sort of you're let into the mind of a character as they experience an epiphany, like at the end of the novel, you know, that I have wasted my life moment. Um, it was, it felt more predictable to me this time because I had obviously read it before. So it was interesting for me to hear your position as someone who is new to reading it. But, um, that's Zuo Ichiguro, The Remains of the Day. And what are we reading next time? What are we reading next time? We are reading Bridget Pegan Kelly's The Orchard. It's a collection of poems. Uh, you can get a copy of the book. I think it was put out by Boa Editions. Uh, brilliant book. She, uh, Bridget Pegan Kelly died... Not that long ago. Um, fairly young. I think she was like in her 60s. So it was like 2014, 2015 when she... Um, it was later. It was definitely when I was in grad school. And The Orchard, I think, <clears throat> was her third book. Her first, She was a Yale Younger poet for her first book. You can't find that cheaply anywhere. I have tried. It is old, old, old. Um, her second book. You would soft, think if it was a Yale younger series of younger poets, it would be. Poets, it would be yeah, yeah, it's not. If it's a collection of poetry, 
get your hands on it like as soon as there are enough used copies to get a cheap used copy <laughs> get one because <clears throat> a lot of like individual first books go out of print and if that poet does not become famous they really go out of print and then you you know start looking for essentially you're looking for a rare book that, they don't come back into know. print until like 20 years yeah. 50 years later when we're all if too old yeah if they do um and a lot of them probably won't so say it's a... yeah. like you'll get reprints that are like in their collected maybe but a, a lot don't go back into print in new editions so um yeah i've looked for first books from poets that like you know only have three books out and their first po you know their first collection wasn't put out that long ago and um i can't find a copy for cheaper than like 25 dollars and that's for used book and that you know right that's like the minimum price and i see copies out there of the same book for like in the hundreds Jesus. And it's not even like a great book or anything. It's like a book that I would right. normally be like, I, w I would pay, you know, maybe $6 to commit to this. But, you know, once you hit the double digits, I'm kind of second guessing things. So it's our, yeah. it's, it's also our, our first official book of poetry that we'll be doing. Yeah. I'm excited for it. I really like this book. I know you really like this book. We've both read it before. We're not going to get any more books from this poet that we know of unless, like, someone scrapes up any of her notes. But she was, I think, as far as I understand, she was a fairly slow writer. Like, she put out maybe a book every 10 years. Um, highly original. Gorgeous stuff. Um, from what I understand, Song is the book that, like, was almost The Orchard, but wasn't quite, and... You know, it's it was the book she wrote when she was trying to write the literature. It, it, from what I've heard, I still have to get a copy of that book. But yeah, um, the Orchard, Bridget Pegan Kelly, Boa Editions. Check it out. Yeah, we'll link that in the description as well as this vintage, uh, vintage international copy that we both used uh, today. I guess we should say, listeners, if they're, uh, we are looking for sponsorships, uh, anything in the Metamucil and or Bidet area. Uh, yeah, anything that helps you shit better, really. Yeah, I'm we, open to it. Um, experimentation, I'm, I'm ready for it. Anything that will improve my dumping game, I'm down. So let me know uh, and <laughs> let us know. Um, get those advertisers contacted. We're already we are regular buyers of your products, so hit us up. Um, yeah. Technically, I use the generic, but I would switch if they gave us a sponsorship. Yeah. Oh, and if you have, you know, terrible stories about things that have happened to you in a workshop, um, we we want to hear from you. So we'll link to the info down in uh, down in the. Um, description for yeah. where you can go to send your horrendous workshop stories yeah it's a segment we want to start on this if you have uh if you're a writer or even any type of workshop <clears throat> scenario you can send in your horror story to uh heavy board podcast at gmail.com we want to uh we think that could be a lot of fun going into that and commiserating with uh anybody out there listening so 
Uh, if you got a funny one or a horrific one. Uh, yeah, don't worry. We won't call out your MFA program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we yeah, we, we will we ask. Yeah, we wouldn't even use, like, you know, names if, if you don't want us to uh, type things. So, yeah, you know. We'll, yeah, it'll be, it'll all be anonymous. Yeah. Um, so it's you don't safer. have to worry about calling out your MFA program or, you know, your specific teachers. You don't, like, you know, you don't even have to be a writer. You have to be, give, just be someone who experienced a shitty say, workshop. Don't give so, anybody any ideas, dude. <laughs> yeah, so if you were, yeah, we all have them. I'm sure we'll share some, too. Sure, we'll share some of our own horror stories. But, yeah, if you got a story, you want us to check it out, um, shoot us an email. Yeah, we will read it on, we will read it on the cast, on the pod, and, uh, uh, We'll probably yeah we'll give you a shout out if you want to be shout out then we will yeah we'll wanna... probably commiserate with you yeah yeah we think it'd be fun to uh, to talk about this shit in most of these places I mean well it doesn't matter all right yeah so if you have that send us a uh, if you have a, a workshop horror story send us your story at heavyboardpodcast at gmail dot com uh, you can contact us there as well uh subscribe to our patreon uh to receive full uncensored episodes for subscribers bonuses interviews etc uh check out our youtube channels and subscribe there for more uh links to all the books and shit in the description and next week we're doing bridget pegan kelly's uh the orchard yeah and come to patreon listen to us say some horrendous shit yeah, that's true. If you have like a really good one, maybe like a workshop store, we'll save it for Patreon. <laughs> and we'll make we'll make people be like, yeah, if you want to hear, if you want names. All right. Well, we'll, we'll spill the beans if you get us some Metamucil sponsorship listeners and or subscribe to Patreons, and then and then we'll we'll start spilling beans. We'll be like the dirty laundry of the. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> anyway. I'm fucking heavy as shit right now. I'm sure you're bored. This is heavy bored. <laughs> I'm Andrew Woodstock. I'm Sophie Wiener. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Fucking cuss. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.